Jeremiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 1, against Moab. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kiryataim, or Kirjataim, is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab in Heshbon. They have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O Madmin. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be from Horonaim, plundering and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard for in the ascent of Luhit. They ascend with continual weeping for in the descent of Horonaim. The enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives and be like the juniper in the wilderness. This particular prophecy against Moab, you'll remember that Moab, the people of Moab were descendants of Lot. And that's found in Genesis chapter 19, verses 20 and 28. You'll remember the whole story about Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were destroyed and how Lot escapes with his life with his two daughters. He gets drunk. Um, Well, actually, the girls get him drunk. He winds up sleeping with both of his daughters and they produce the people group called the Ammonites and the Moabites. And you can imagine the Moabites didn't have a lot of forks on the family tree. And so they were a problem, a continual problem for the Jews. Moab, for the most part, Remained perennial enemies. There were periods of peace, but those were few and far between. Now, many of the the locations in this chapter, about 20 of them are unknown. And I'm going to try and point those things out. In 582, Nebuchadnezzar's army invaded Moab, destroyed the people and the cities and left destruction behind. The reason for this judgment was Moab's pride. You see that in verse 7 in verses 29 and 30 and its complacency in verse 11. The Moabites were certain that their God, Chemosh or Chemosh, would protect them. He's mentioned in verse 7, verse 13, verse 35 and verse 46. They felt confident that no army could scale the heights to reach them on their secure plateau. And so Moab is a country that's located on a plateau. I don't know if you've ever been in a country where there's a mesa, like, for instance, New Mexico, where you have a valley and you go up the the, the cliff and there's a, a huge, large plateau. And Moab was One of those nations. Now, the Bible teaches that a series of judgments are going to take place. We've already talked about some of those judgments. The Bible talks about a judgment for sin at the cross of Calvary. There's a daily judgment that takes place in the life of believers. There's the judgment of the saints. There's the judgment of the living nations. There's the great white throne judgment. So the Bible has a whole lot to say about a whole lot of judgments. The Bible even speaks of the judgment of fallen angels. Here, it also speaks of the nation Israel and the surrounding nations. In Psalm 96, 13, the psalmist said, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. The passage in Psalm 96:13 is a reference to rewards for righteousness but included in the concept of judgment is punishment for wickedness but reward for righteousness so why will God judge the world where well, there's lots of reasons not least of which is the problem of human sin rebellion violence acts of evil In this chapter of Jeremiah, he's going to give several reasons for the judgment of the surrounding nations, in particular Moab. 
materialism and idolatry in verses 1 through 10, complacency in verses 11 through 17, self-sufficiency, self-exaltation, the persecution of God's people in verses 18 through 28. There's the problem of pride in verses 29 through 46. And then there's also the promise of the secession of judgment. There's going to be a time when the judgment is over with, where that time is past and mercy and grace and restoration is going to take place. But it doesn't take place in this chapter till the very end of the chapter in verse 47. So it begins in verse one against Moab. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kiriataim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. I'm going to have James put up a, a picture of a map. And you see this map in front of you or either to my my right or my left. But you'll notice the kingdom of Israel. You'll see the kingdom of Judah. This is during this kind of time period when um, Jeremiah's prophecy is taking place. You can see the kingdom of Edom. You see just north of that the kingdom of Moab. And you can see where Jerusalem is. And that's the Dead Sea. And you can see um, the Jordan River flowing from the north to the south into the sea. So this gives you an idea of the relationship of the kingdom of Edom. What it doesn't give you is a picture of the routes that would take from the north to the south and from the south to the north. The kingdom of Edom was right in the middle of a trade route, including that rock city, the impenetrable fortress of Petra. And this made the Edomites incredibly wealthy. In Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 9, the boundaries are given, marked by Bet Shemot to the north, Baal Mion to the east, Kiryataim to the south. So Jeremiah predicts that when God's hand of judgment is executed against Moab, it's going to include the destruction of their cities, and it's going to focus on six of the major cities that are listed. And their destruction is indicative of the trial of the whole nation. You can imagine if someone said to you, San Francisco has been destroyed, that would be shocking and upsetting. But if they said, I'm only starting, San Diego is gone, Seattle is gone, Las Vegas is gone, Phoenix is gone, then all of a sudden you begin to see The extent of the devastation that's taking place. And that's how the people reading this in in the time of Jeremiah would have understood it. Nebo lies in ruins. And by the way, this isn't Mount Nebo that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 39. This is a territory that's located within this place called the kingdom of Edom. Now, Many of you are familiar with the time when Moses leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Joshua will eventually conquer the area. They will part part. They will. What's the word I'm looking for? They'll cut up. That's not the right word. Different parts of the land are going to be designated for different tribes. The tribe that is going to basically occupy this area of Edom is going to be the tribe of Reuben. Now, there's a very famous archaeological find that was made in 1868 called the Moabite Stone. And in it, it mentions King Misha of Moab conquering this particular city. But the Moabites will were subjugated by David and Solomon. They became a vassal state to Assyria. They became problematic for the Jewish people. They'll form an alliance with the Nabataeans, the Arabu tribes, the kingdom of Moab when when Babylon is coming in. But it's going to prove to be a failure. And and Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy Moab as well. Kiryataim is humiliated and captured. The high stronghold Mizgab, which is a fortified city sitting on a high stronghold, would be disgraced and cast down. In verse 2 it says, no more praise of Moab in Heshbon. They have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O Madmin. 
In your Bible, it might look like it reads madmen. It doesn't mean people who are crazy in need of psychiatric help. It's actually the name of the city. It says that the sword shall pursue you. Heshbon would be conquered. Now, Heshbon is a city that when the Babylonian armies come in, they're going to capture the city. They're going to use it as their headquarters for the invading army. So in this particular city of Heshbon, when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar show up and the generals show up, this is the place where they're going to stage the takeover of the rest of the country. So it's this particular place that um, is going to serve as the strategic headquarters for the occupying army as they plot to overthrow the entire nation of Moab. Madmin is mentioned only here in the scripture. And it says that it would be silenced. The enemy would pursue the citizens of the city and slaughter them with the sword. And so the picture is one of total devastation. Verse 3, a voice of crying shall be from Oronaim. Plundering and great destruction. The idea is that this city hears the cries of the battle in the midst of destruction. In other words, it would be like if you could hear rumblings five miles from here, ten miles from here. Imagine if it were possible. Everybody in at Invesco Field or whatever the, what's it's called, Sports Authority Field now. It keeps changing, so I keep forgetting. But imagine everyone at Coors Field and in Sports Authority, they started shouting at the top of their lungs, and you could hear it all the way here. That's the idea. Plundering and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. You know, one of the real tragedies of war of any sort is the death of children where you see innocence um, killed. It says for in the ascent of Luhit, they ascend with continual weeping for in the descent of Horonaim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. And then in verse six, it says, flee, save your lives and be like the juniper in the wilderness. The picture is weeping bitterly, children screaming, horrified by the slaughter. People run and hide. And so the picture in verse six, when it says flee and be like the juniper in the wilderness, the idea is run, go hide in the desert and try to blend in with the bushes. That's what it's basically saying. How do you escape this onslaught. And then it continues with the people of Moab's apostasy, beginning in verse seven. It says, for because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh or Chemosh shall go forth into captivity, his priests and his princess together. So now, according to the Bible, the worship of this God who was called in the Bible, the abomination of Moab began to be introduced to Jerusalem by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7. And so what is important about that is Solomon took wives from the Edomites, from the Ammonites, from the Nabataeans, from the Assyrians in the north. Many of you know that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. But part of the reason why he had so many wives was to establish political alliances with all of the little tribal states that were around him. But with that, with marrying that princess, she brought the worship of this false deity into Jerusalem. That deity was abolished by Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 13. By the way, the Talmud quoted by Rashi says, that his wives built the temples uh, and that Solomon was was basically considered responsible because Solomon, as the king, had the ability to say no to the pagan temples. And he didn't. For political expedience and in the spirit of living in harmony. 
He allows the worship of these false gods. And by the way, on the Moabite stone, Misha in 2 Kings 3, 5, ascribes his victories over the king of Israel to this God. In other words, he says the reason why they were able to overcome Israel, it says, and Chemosh drove him before my sight. So you can imagine they're thinking that their deity is the one who are guiding their victories. Now, the major sins of Moab were idolatry, the worship of this fake God, and materialism. And again, because of Moab's location as a trade route, they became prosperous. The city senders indicate highly skilled and industrial people. And you've got to understand something. At this particular moment in time and space and history, Moab was had... A, a, a multitude of people living in it. It was a materialist society. They loved wealth and they loved all of the benefits that wealth brings. So they're guilty of idolatry. And so the invading army will take their wealth. And in the process of taking their wealth, they'll also take their false god, Kamosh. He's going to be helpless before the invading armies. The false God, along with his priests and prophets, will go into exile into Babylon. So why do they take them? Because in ancient times, when you could capture the deity of the particular city and you could establish it in your new place, people thought that this gave you extraordinary powers. And because the priests and priestesses and prophets were usually the literati, that means the literate group of people, they could provide White-collar jobs in Babylon. So the invading armies would take their wealth, take the people, and then we see the Lord's anger in verses 8 through 10. Look what it says. And the plunderer shall come against every city. The plunderer, of course, in this case is Babylon. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed. As the Lord has spoken, give wings to Moab that she may flee and get away, for her city shall be desolate without any to dwell in them. In other words, here's the idea, that even if you were a bird, And even if you could put wings on top of your back, you couldn't fly away quick enough to get away from the invading army. And then it says, cursed is he who does not work, who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. In order to understand this, again, the people's idolatry, materialism, sin means that the nation will be destroyed. Not a single town in the country is going to escape destruction. All the towns in the plateau and the valleys are going to be destroyed. Human beings can no longer inhabit the area, according to verse 9. The cities are so utterly destroyed, it would be like if a person took salt so you could prevent any further growth in the area. The Lord had appointed an agent to execute his justice and judgment on Moab. And the Lord was determined to execute the judgment. So he determines and pronounces a curse. Basically, this is the Lord through Jeremiah saying. Cursed is the agent if he fails to be diligent in executing judgment. Here's the idea. God is going to use Babylon to execute judgment On Moab and pronounces a curse in the event that they refuse to do so, but they will do so. The point God gives stiff and stern warnings for people who are involved in materialism and idolatry. We are, of course, encouraged not to place our trust in wealth and possessions. We know that wealth and possessions can be taken away. In other words, should your devotion be to something or someone that can disappear? We can have our possessions disappear. By the way, how many of you know that money can just evaporate overnight? Many of you know that. Is it possible that a recession, 
that an economic downturn, that war, that sickness, that depression, that bankruptcy, that theft, that extortion, strikes, natural disasters, catastrophic events, terrorists, war. We can lose our jobs, serious accidents, diseases. There's no end to the amount of ways that this world can take away your possessions. So does it make sense to trust them? Our primary trust is in the Lord. The person who places their full trust in materialism and idolatry invites judgment. The same is true of anything that you trust or anyone. If you place your confidence in anything other than the true and the living God. In Mark 10, 24, it says, And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered and said to them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I will say, it says in Luke 19, I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for you. Years, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. Then whose things shall these be that you have provided? Not that God has provided, particularly for the person who who will say in a blasphemous way to you, God didn't give me this job. God didn't provide for me. Think about it. Everything that you have really does come from God. Did God give you a brain? Then that's the brain that you used to think with. Did God, I know what some of you are thinking, well, I I wonder if God left me out. No, God did give you a brain. In verse 11, it speaks of the arrogance of the people of Moab. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. The illustration that Jeremiah is using is wine aging in a jar that has become vintage. Uh, you know, some people might go to a fancy restaurant and say, oh, Chateaubriand, 1948. You pop the cork, you pour the wine. You swish the wine in. And remember, wine that is aged is better. And so here's the idea. He likens Moab to vintage wine. The nation is comfortable, self-sufficient, unprepared for the looming judgment. When it says he has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, the, the picture is being poured from one place into another place. In other words, Moab has been able to stay safe and secure. Some of you may have grown up in a circumstance that required you to move around a lot. You might have had a mother or father who were in the military. And you were in five different elementary schools or two different middle schools or three different high schools. And what happens if you move from place to place to place to place to place? You get this feeling of insecurity and that you have to start all over again. Moab never had to move. They were always safe and secure. Other nations oppressed them, but no one had been able to capture them and deport them and send them into exile. And so for a very long time, the nation escaped suffering and invasion on its own soil. It had everything that money could buy, all the materialistic advantages, a strong economy and wealth. But what happens to an arrogant and a complacent nation? We had the Japanese drop bombs on Pearl Harbor. And about 3,000 Americans were killed. Al-Qaeda operatives flew planes into buildings at ground zero. Was it 11 years now? 11 years ago. And the Twin Towers fell. Another plane crashed into the Pentagon. 
It was bad enough that this was happening, but this is an act of terror and war that is taking place on our own soil. And there was a sense of panic and fear, but also anger and resolve. You see, there are lots of nations that have had to suffer war. Korea, Vietnam, other countries have been through a laundry list of, of suffering and invasion. Moab thought that they were safe. But Jeremiah predicts the shattering of Moab's complacency. In verse 12 it says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Do you understand the illustration? The days are coming. I'm going to send him wine workers who's going to tip him over and empty his vessels, break the bottles. It's the idea. Do you, do you remember? Some of you are still kids. You take up some Coke or some Pepsi and you shake it really hard. and You pop the lid. What happens? It starts showering in every single direction. And that seems to be the image. I think that there's a double meaning. There's a double reference. The picture is the Lord himself is going to arouse them from their complacency. The judgment of Babylon, a future judgment. I'm going to suggest to you that there's this immediate judgment that's going to be taking place by Babylon. But there's a future judgment that awaits every single nation that has decided to put God on hold and put Jesus Just away for the time being. There are lots of people who think that they don't have to consider the claims of Christ. And God says, I'm going to shake you up. That's how God deals with complacency sometimes. He'll shake you up. Are you comfortable? Are you secure? Are you apathetic? Are you indifferent? Every once in a while, the Lord might nudge you in a particular area that creates a certain measure of difficulty. And God does so, not because he hates you, but because he wants you to trust him. So there are seven predictions that give a graphic picture of what's going to happen to Moab. Moab's abuse poured out like wine, smashed like a wine jar in verse 12. And then in verse 13, Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel at their confidence. So Moab's abuse and then Moab's going to be ashamed of their crazy, ineffectual, worthless, sterile, False God that they esteemed so highly. They're going to be ashamed of their idol the way Israel was ashamed of the false gods that they worshipped at Bethel. In a day of judgment, mankind's preoccupation with idolatry will seem senseless and foolish. In other words, they're going to be ashamed that they trusted in gold or they trusted in silver or they trusted in real estate or they entrusted the stock market or that somehow the economy is going to bounce back or that somehow a good job or an education is going to provide you all that you need in order to have a secure future free from suffering do you know what black people and white people share in common vulnerability do you know what men and women share in common vulnerability Do you know what all people share in common? All people who trust anything other than the Lord are putting themselves at risk. And so when the judgment came for Moab. And they looked to their sterile, foolish, empty God. And they cried out and they said, why won't you save us? Have you ever heard someone Use the name of the Lord in vain. They have no relationship with God whatsoever. They have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. But they'll, when disaster hits, you hear them say, oh, my God. Or you hear them say, and not in a nice way, not in a reverent way. They say, Jesus Christ. They don't know him. They don't love him. 
They don't trust him. These people are calling out to a false god who can't save them. In verse 14, how can you say we are mighty and strong men for the war? So Moab's abuse, Moab's shame with Chemosh. Now Moab is no longer going to be able to boast about a strong army and the valor of its soldiers. How can you say we are mighty and strong men for the war? We used to have an army. We used to be a mighty nation. People used to fear us, but no longer. Number four, Moab's going to be invaded. Its cities are going to be destroyed. Its young men are going to be slaughtered in verse 15. Moab's going to be punished, judged by the Lord himself, the only true and living God in verse 15. Moab is going to face calamity, a day of Reckoning in verse 16, Moab is going to be mourned by the surrounding nations because its mighty scepter and its glorious staff is going to be broken. And when it says mighty scepter and it says glorious staff, this is a Middle Eastern idiomatic expression, which means the power and the rule. They will be broken. Look at verse 15. Moab is plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand and his afflictions come quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him and all you who know his name. Say how the strong staff is broken. The beautiful rod, the staff and the rod were the instruments that represent Presented both this power and the sovereignty of the nation. And then in verse 18, O daughter, inhabiting Dibon, come down from your glory and sit in thirst, for the plunderer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. The fortified cities in the country of Moab can't resist the onslaught of the army. O inhabitants of Aurora, in verse 19, stand by the way and watch. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what's happened? Verse 20, Moab is shamed for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it in Arnon that Moab is plundered. These are cities. And judgment has come on the plain country, on Olan and Jasa and Mafat. On Dibon and Nebo and Bet Diblataim, on Kiryataim, Bet Gamul, Bet Mion, on Kiryot and Basra. Basra was a very famous trade city filled with incredible merchants and merchandise. It would have been very much like New York City in, in, in those days. On the cities of the land of Moab, far and near, the horn of Moab is cut off. His arm is broken, says the Lord. The horn and the arm are the military power of Moab. The economy is broken. The sovereignty, gone. The military power, Gone. Verse 26. Make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit and also in his derision. Now, remember, remember, remember. The Lord has used this illustration of wine. Vintage wine. Special wine. Expensive, perfect wine. And so the Moabites are self-sufficient. They're exalted. They exalt themselves above the Lord. They refuse to honor God. And so a new image is introduced by the prophet. It's the image of wine and drinking wine and a party. So here's the image. The nation is overcome, intoxicated, inebriated by the cup that's been given them to the Lord. And so here's the image, the images of a party where Moab has come to the party and now the nation finds itself vomiting. Now, I know all of you guys were never party hardy type of animal people. You never went to parties when your kids growing up. You never drank that crazy wine or that crazy beer. You never did tequila shots. You never did anything like that. You never hugged that porcelain Buddha and threw up. You never just did wild, crazy, stupid, drunk, crazy, crazy things. But that's the image here. It's the image of a nation vomiting, wallowing in a puddle of vomit, completely overcome, 
completely intoxicated, unable to do anything that resembles propriety. Why? Because the judgment has overtaken them. You see, when you're drunk, you might say and do stupid things that you wouldn't normally do. And when the pressure of judgment falls on you, all of a sudden you feel sick, you feel nauseous, you feel like you're going to throw up. It's an awful image. And then it says in verse 27, For was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves? For wherever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. Here's the idea. The Moabites had persecuted God's people. They were treating Israel and the people of Israel with contempt. And they had done that in every generation. And here seems to be part of the problem that Jeremiah is exploring. These two sins were an invitation to judgment. The Moabites had persecuted God's people. The Moabites had treated God's people with contempt. And persecution and contempt become an invitation to judgment. You know, there's a few countries in this world that treat Christians with the most despicable contempt. In North Korea, many of our Christian brothers and sisters are imprisoned. In Saudi Arabia, they are found, they are isolated, they are incarcerated, and often killed. When you think about the countries that treat God's people with contempt... It becomes an invitation to judgment. The Moabites are humiliated. Because they treated Israel with contempt, they themselves become the objects of ridicule. They're forced to flee to the rocks. They run to the caves in an effort to escape self-sufficiency and self-exaltation, along with contempt for, for the people of God, will arouse God's anger. Persecuting God's people will arouse God's anger. This is why it's such a bad idea to ridicule God and blaspheme God and persecute God's people. Here's part of the point. Life is fragile. Life is temporary. No wonder God calls on human beings everywhere to put their trust in him. Human knowledge is fleeting. Human strength is fleeting and it's temporary. Here's what the Lord is saying. Don't trust the nations. Don't even trust each other. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. Whoever who will humble himself will be exalted. And so the, the Bible gives us a plan. The way up. Is the way down. Do you want to get close to God? Do you want to draw near to him? Do you want to embrace him? Do you want to have his favor? Then don't seek to exalt yourself. Don't think more highly than you ought. And then look what it says in verse 28. You who dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. Note the image. It's of a dove hiding in a cave. Now, remember, they're running, they're fleeing, they're trying to escape judgment. Now they're hiding in a cave. It says you're going to be like the dove in the cave. Now, again, no offense against doves. Do you think they're smart? Birds are not so smart birds. Doves are pretty clueless. Doves often score very low on educational tests. Here's the image. The dove is hiding in the cave. The dove is clueless. The dove looks to the to the right. The dove looks to the left. 
The dove has made her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. Empty, clueless, unaware of the danger. Now we're going to go. We're going to we're going to drop down rather rapidly, but we're going to come back. I just want you to go to verse 40 real quick. For thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. The clueless dove hiding in the cave doesn't see the eagle coming from the bright sunlight. And as all of a sudden, Verse 29, we have heard the pride of Moab. And look what it says in the text. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and the haughtiness of his heart. Now, think about what you're reading in verse 29. Pride or a synonym for the word pride is used at least six times. Proud, conceited, arrogant, and note the heart. Their pride is way deeper just than just on the surface. He's exceedingly proud. In other words, you've heard the expression, um, beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes clean to the bone. An attitude of pride might be superficial at best, but this is something that's thorough. It, it's infected their very character. It's insolent, disrespectful, untruthful, shameless, boastful. Where there is pride, by the way, there's usually boasting. But God says that their boasts are foolish and futile. It's not going to accomplish anything. Verse 30, I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it's not right. His lies have made Nothing right. In other words, will pride save you in the day of judgment? Imagine. Have you ever heard people say, I can't wait to get to heaven and give God a piece of my mind? What did you say? Yeah, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. The maker of heaven and earth, you're going to, there's times when you need to just keep your mouth shut. That's not the time to accuse God and excuse yourself. Oh, God doesn't know how upset I am with him. I've told you that, haven't I? When somebody comes into my office and says, I'm mad at God, I just go, Pastor, what are you doing behind your desk? I'm just afraid that lightning is going to come from the sky and consume you and me. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it's not right. His lies have made nothing right. In other words, his pride won't save him. Therefore, I will wait for Moab. I I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kir Eris. Do you understand? Remember in our study in the book of Jeremiah, what's his other name? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And here we see Jeremiah weeping for Moab. There is sympathy and compassion. The sympathy and compassion isn't just limited to the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, he begins to weep and mourn for the people of Moab. Why? What, what, does, what does this mean? What does Jeremiah's compassion mean? It means what the Bible says in Ezekiel 18.32. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What about the people who are destroyed because of their sins against the Lord? Here's the principle. God is at work. Here's what the principle is. God is at work calling people to repentance before the judgment falls. And the attitude, what is the Lord's attitude about judgment? It's one of compassion and weeping and mourning for those who are being punished. And so the invitation is to say, hey, look. If you think I'm up in heaven going, finally, the sinners get to go to hell. You've missed the whole 
point. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. There's sympathy and compassion. Weeping and mourning for those who are being punished. And then God gives nine reasons. I'm going to read quickly. O vine of Sibma, I will weep for you. This is verse 32. O vine of Sibma, I will weep for you with the weeping of Jatsir. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the sea of Jatsir. The plunderer has fallen on your summer fruit and your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting from the cry of Heshbon to Elelah and to Jahaz. They have uttered their voice from Zoar to Oronaim like a three-year-old heifer. For the waters of Nimrim also shall be desolate. Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burns incense to his gods. Therefore, my heart shall wail like the flutes for Moab and like flutes, my heart shall wail for the men of Kir Eres. Therefore, the riches they have acquired have perished for every head shall be bald and every beard clipped on the hands shall be cuts on the loins sackcloth, a general lamb. Lamentation on all the housetops of Moab and in its streets, for I have broken Moab like a vessel in which is no pleasure, says the Lord. They shall wail. How she is broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab shall be a derision and a dismay to all those around her. The nine reasons quickly. Number one, God weeps because the people suffer. Economic devastation in verse 32. They lose their vineyards. They lose their way to make a living. There's an economic collapse. And if you're wondering, oh, God is in heaven and he loves it when people lose their job. He loves it when there's economic devastation. No, God weeps. Number two, God weeps because the people are going to lose their job. And with the loss of their job comes the loss of joy and the loss of judgment because they've lost their livelihood. They've lost their joy. They've lost their 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 gladness as judgment sweeps upon them in verse 33. Their orchards and fields are destroyed. The wine no longer flows from the presses. There's no longer anyone to tread the grapes with shouts of joy. Any shout isn't going to be because of joy, but because of the horrible suffering they're experiencing because of the judgment. So God weeps because of the economic devastation. God weeps because the people have lost their joy and gladness. God weeps because the people's cry could be heard throughout the land in verse 34. All the major cities of the land are filled with people crying and in agony and pain and the atrocities brought on by the war and the destruction. And God weeps weeps because the people's idolatry is forcing him to execute judgment against all the false worshipers in verse 35. And God weeps because of the loss of wealth in verse 36. When the armies are defeated and their cities are destroyed and the economy collapses and then the conquerors come in and then they strip the place of all of its wealth, of all of its valuables, Very much like the Nazis did when they invaded Italy, when they invaded Poland, when they invaded every place that they would invade, they would take anything that had any value and then they would appropriate it to themselves. And then God weeps because the people were gripped by a spirit of grief and mourning in verse 37. And God will weep because the people were mourning in every home. Now, I want you to think about it as how thorough in every home, on every street, in every place in the nation. That's what verse 38 means when it says... A general lamentation on all the housetops of Moab in its streets, for I have broken Moab like a vessel, which is no pleasure, says the Lord. The people are broken. The people are shattered. Because the hand of judgment. Because of their horrible sins. It is so difficult for me to communicate with you. How difficult it is. 
When you decide to leave your husband and you decide to leave your wife, when you decide to abuse your children, when a person decides to molest a child, when a person decides to do that which is wicked and that which is weird and that which is wrong, and then all of a sudden families are destroyed and communities are divided and churches collapse under the weight of sin as the consequences begin to take their toll. Their sins force God to execute justice and judgment. And you might have thought that you can't force God to do anything. But you can force God to execute justice and judgment. If you continue a life of rebellion and disobedience. Because God weeps because the people would become the object of shame and ridicule to the surrounding nations and peoples in verse 39. And then Moab faces judgment because of pride. Look again in verse 40. For thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. The armies come in like aircraft. Kiriot is taken and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. He who flees from the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who gets out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For upon Moab, upon it, I will bring the year of their punishment. Punishment, says the Lord, those who fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion. But a fire shall come out of Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon and shall devour the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumul. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh perish for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. Now think about this. The picture is the judgment has come and there's no escape. Flee from the army. You fall into the pit. Climb into the pit. You're caught in a trap. Escape from the trap. You're engulfed in fire. Escape from the fire. You're taken to Babylon. Do you understand the, what you're reading? When God said there would be no escape for Judah and Jerusalem. When God said there would be no escape for Moab. Now all of a sudden we understand when the New Testament writer says, how will we escape? How will Western civilization escape? How will Eastern civilization escape? How will the nations escape? How will the United States of America escape? How will Colorado escape? How will you Escape. You flee from the army. You fall into the pit. You climb out of the pit. You get caught in the trap. You escape from the trap. You're engulfed with the fire. You escape from the fire. And you think, I dodged a bullet. And then you're taken away captive to Babylon. You see, sinners need to face the fact that there's no place to hide when God begins to judge. And if you're wondering what it's going to be like for the whole wide world, read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. For lost sinners today, there's only one hope. It's faith in Jesus who died for our sins. You see, there is a need to flee to the city of refuge. In our case, the city of refuge is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says he's the only refuge for our souls. And sinful pride is a terrible evil. Exalting yourself will often result in the degrading of others. And so God will discipline. Moab would face the judgment of God because of its pride in verses 40 through 46. 
The nation would be attacked by an enemy that would swoop down like an eagle in verse 40. All the cities would be captured. The soldiers defending the cities would be as helpless as women in labor. And the Lord would destroy Moab because the people had exalted themselves and because they had resisted and then they had rejected God. And the people of Moab said, it can't happen. We've never been defeated We've never been overthrown. We have never been taken captive. We've never been isolated and subjugated. They thought that they were in an impregnable circumstance. Anyone who attempted to flee the terror would fall into the trap, verse 44. Even the people who fled to safety of Heshbon wouldn't escape the blazing fire of the invader, the agent of God's judgment in verse 45. God himself would make certain... That every man and every woman received exactly what they were supposed to receive. Do you know what that means for you and me? Remember, I said that judgment will take two forms. It will take punishment and it will take the form of reward. And make no mistake about it. If you are a man or a woman who's accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and you're found in Jesus. There's a reward that awaits you. It's eternal life. The year of Moab's punishment. The very day of the nation's reckoning was at hand. And Moab would be conquered and devastated. All of the worshipers of Chemosh would be destroyed or taken captive or exiled. And then you have this amazing verse right at the end. Yet, I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. Look again in verse 47. In the latter days, says the Lord. Do you understand what you're reading? This is a promise of mercy. This is a promise of restoration. This is a a promise of some sort of outpouring and reunification. And when will this happen? Read the text. In the latter days. By the way, Did this reunion take place after the captivity of Judah? No. Did it take place during the Greek and Egypt occupation? No. Did it take place under the Romans? No. Has it taken place now? No. In the latter days, which days are those? This is the day that the Messiah will come. He'll rule and he'll reign. See, this is part of the restoration and the promise. There's a promise of mercy and there's a promise of restoration. Even for Moab in that particular time, the promise is that when the Messiah comes, the people who belong in this particular place will occupy that place in peace and safety because they're going to honor the God of the Bible and they're going to honor his Messiah. So when will the promise of mercy and restoration take place? You've all heard the expression. There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus brings Peace for the sinner. But Jesus also brings peace to the nation whose God is the Lord. If ever there was a time, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time that pride and arrogance and conceit and complacency and idolatry needed to go away in our lives, it's now. The Lord has a track record of judging all of those things. The Lord has a track record of keeping his promises. Next is the prophecy against Ammon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. (laughs) Lord, 
What an amazing book this book of Jeremiah is. The things that you say and the things that you do. The principles that you point out. The compassion and the mercy that you have. Even when judgment begins and continues. And Lord, for that person who feels like they've been in a hot fire. Lord, I pray that they would experience the cool, refreshing, living waters of mercy and grace. I pray that it would wash over their heart and their life as they would turn to you. Lord, we pray that we would turn from our sin and we would turn from our selfishness and we would turn from our materialism and we would turn from our complacency and most of all, Lord, that we would turn from our pride and our idolatry. Because there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more beautiful than you. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who maybe finds himself or herself in an empty place, in a distant place. Lord, I pray you would fill their heart with the knowledge that you take no pleasure in discipline or judgment. But that in the tears that are being shed, that the grace and the mercy of God would wash afresh in the heart of the sinner, that we could turn from our sin and turn to Jesus And trust him. In Jesus name.